To say that the Lord Jesus was a masterful teacher would really be a gross understatement. He could teach and communicate in a way that far exceeds any man or woman in all of history. As the officers who were sent to arrest Jesus put it in John 7, 46, no man ever spoke like this man. That was their reply when they came back and they had not arrested him. Why why didn't you arrest him? What's going on? No man ever spoke like this man. Jesus taught with power, with precision, and with amazing, an amazing economy of words. His parables are simply one shining example of that reality. Let's turn again to Mark chapter 4 as we resume our series through Mark's fast-moving gospel account. The parable that we are going to consider in this message consists of only two verses, but there are a few other verses surrounding it, giving us context. So Mark chapter 4, right near the end, verse 30. Mark 4, verse 30. Then Jesus said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many other such parables, Jesus spoke, uh, spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. This is one of several parables in this fourth chapter of Mark's gospel. Jesus employed this teaching methodology for a specific purpose. You might remember that he did not begin his ministry by teaching this way. Instead, he began his ministry by calling for people to repent so they could become a part of the kingdom. But very few responded to that message. The vast majority of the Jewish population, frankly, didn't believe they needed to repent. They thought they were fine already. And thus, they responded to Jesus' call to repentance with either indifference or animosity. The religious leaders were the ones who especially responded with animosity. It would not be an overstatement to say that they hated Jesus. They ended up actually hating him. They hated him with such venom that they called him demon-possessed and satanic. That was their official stance, their official declaration about Jesus. And when the religious leaders made that proclamation, many of the people in the society went along with it as well. After all, when a group of religious leaders makes a statement, then it's Understandable that many people under their influence or in society would just go along with it. And that is exactly what happened. When that happened, when the religious leaders made their statement, made their declaration, Jesus began to speak to the crowds in parables. The disciples immediately noticed a change in Jesus' style of teaching. So according to Matthew 13, 10, they asked him why. Lord, why are you now teaching in parables and not in a direct, straightforward manner. 
In response to their question, Jesus gave two answers. Number one, he told them that he was speaking in parables to continue revealing truth to the disciples and to do so by using stories to which they could relate. This would help them understand the concepts more clearly. You see, Jesus was teaching them mysteries. The definition of a biblical mystery is a truth that was not revealed in the Old Testament or in Hebrew Scripture, but has now been revealed to the New Testament saints. So these were brand new truths for the disciples. Regardless of how well they knew their Scripture, regardless of how well they knew the Old Testament, they would not have known these things. These were new concepts. Therefore, Jesus used parables to communicate these new concepts of spiritual truths through comparisons. Comparisons in life that the disciples knew well. Secondly, Jesus answered the question of the disciples concerning why he was speaking in parables by saying he was doing so to conceal truth from unbelievers. You see, the religious leaders had made their willful and final choice to reject Jesus as their Messiah. That occurred back in chapter 3 of this gospel. As a, as a result of this decision, Jesus decided that he would give his rejectors no more additional truth. No more information. Thus, Jesus spoke in parables to the multitudes so he could pull his disciples aside and give them the explanation without giving any more information to the ones who had made their final choice of rejection. When you stop to think about it, this was an act of mercy and an act of judgment at the same time. Let me explain. It was an act of judgment because the rejectors would be given no more clear and straightforward message to which they could respond. It was all veiled now. It was all in parable form. But it was also an act of mercy because if Jesus had continued to give them more truth, their condemnation would have increased based on the principle that the more revelation someone is given, the greater the accountability and judgment. So Jesus speaks in parables throughout chapter 4 of this gospel account <clears throat> as he explains the mystery form of the kingdom. The mystery that Jesus is referring to here is not the kingdom itself because the Old Testament saints knew all about the kingdom. Hebrew scripture is filled with passages about the kingdom. So that's not the mystery. The mystery is the form the kingdom is now taken with the king absent from the earth during what we would call the church age. This spiritual form of the kingdom that we are now in is something the Old Testament saints knew nothing of. They knew nothing about it. They knew only about this earthly kingdom that was promised throughout Hebrew Scripture and which is yet to come. But they didn't know that the kingdom would take this mystery form with the Messiah reigning in the hearts and lives of his people from heaven, not on David's throne on earth. They didn't know that there would be a gap between the first coming of the Messiah and the establishing of the kingdom on earth at the second coming. They didn't know about that. But there is this gap. And beloved, we are presently living in this gap. This gap involves the king back in heaven 
and his kingdom being preached here upon the earth to people who one day can be in the kingdom, the earthly kingdom, if they respond to the message with repentance and faith. As you well know, some do and some do not. So you could also almost say that the mystery form of the kingdom is a mixed bag of people, as we see illustrated in many of the parables that Jesus told about the kingdom. Some are true citizens of the kingdom, and some are not, even though they appear by outward appearance to be citizens of the kingdom. Beloved, we are in this mystery form of the kingdom today. This form of the kingdom that we are presently in is nowhere prophesied in the Old Testament or Hebrew Scripture. Jesus the King is not bodily present reigning on the earth, but he's still the king over a kingdom. Colossians 1.13 speaks about this form of the kingdom when it says, He has delivered us from the power of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. This is the form of the kingdom that the Old Testament saints knew nothing of. So many of Jesus' parables in Matthew 13, here in Mark 4, and in other places are about this mystery form of the kingdom. Jesus tells a number of parables to explain what this mystery form of the kingdom is all about. So far in our trek through Mark's gospel, we have considered two of the parables here in chapter 4. We have looked at the parable of the soils in verses 3 through 9 and the parable of the seed in verses 26 through 29. The parable of the soils emphasizes the fact that there are going to be a variety of responses to the preaching of the kingdom down through the centuries. For example, some are going to dismiss the message immediately, as soon as they hear it. Thanks, but no thanks. They're not interested. They have no interest in the gospel, no interest in the kingdom, no interest in spiritual truth. They don't want anything to do with Jesus and his truth. That's how some people respond to the word. But, that's not, but not all are in that category. Some are going to have a positive response initially, but Jesus cautions that it's only emotional. They are excited about what they hear, but they don't count the cost of devotion to Christ, and they aren't willing to repent of sin. So in time, their emotional interest eventually fades away, and their superficial attachment to Jesus dissipates, which proves there was never really a genuine commitment to Christ on a volitional level. But there are other responses. Some people have an interest in the kingdom and an interest in the, the truth and in the word of God, but Jesus warned that they allow the cares of this world and the priorities of this world and the, and the riches of this world to choke out their interest in God's kingdom. So in time, though there's a, an interest, they just go back to their same old ways of life. But, Jesus says, there are those who truly receive the word and they are given life in Christ. These people bear fruit in their lives, which demonstrates that their faith is real. That is the message of the parable of the soils that Jesus gave in the early verses of, of this chapter. The parable of the seed, which we looked at in the last message of this series, has a similar but different message to communicate. The parable of the seed emphasizes the fact that the seed of God's Word has life in itself 
And it is the power that produces life in us and produces results when it is spread throughout the world. In other words, this whole kingdom stuff, spiritual spirituality, whatever you want to call it, it's not merely a matter of human response or human choice or human responsibility. Yes, yes, we have a responsibility to respond properly to the Word of God. And we have a responsibility to spread the seed of the Word of God. But we don't have the power to produce life. We can't make things happen spiritually. We can't force life and growth in our own lives. Nor can we make life and growth take place in the lives of those to whom we spread the seed of the Word of God. The power is in, the life is in the Word of God itself. And there is a mysterious element to how it works to produce life in us and in others and how it grows. That's the parable of the seed. That's the message Jesus gave through that parable. This morning we come to a third parable that Jesus told in this fourth chapter. And it is the parable of the mustard seed. Just as in the case of the previous two parables, this one has its own emphasis, its own Uh, its own intent. Let's see what it is. Verse 30. Mark says, tells us, then he, the he of course is, is Jesus. Then Jesus said, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Now remember, Jesus is talking about this mystery form of the kingdom of God during this church age. He says, you know, how, how can I explain this? This is new truth. This is something that you, you've not been exposed to in your reading of Hebrew Scripture. So what would be a good analogy? What would be a good picture? And here's the one our Lord chose to use. Verse 31. It is like a mustard seed, which when it is sown on the ground is smaller than all the seeds on earth. This was a common seed during the time of Jesus, back in first century Israel. The leaves of the black mustard plant were used as a vegetable, and the seed, the little seed, as a condiment. It also had medicinal benefits. So the disciples were familiar with this seed. They were familiar with this plant, which could grow into a bush or a tree, whichever term you want to use, that could stand at least 15 feet high. That's mentioned in the next verse, verse 32. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, the mustard seed is not the smallest of all seeds in existence, but it was in comparison to all the other seeds the Jews sowed in Palestine. And that's what Jesus is saying here in this verse. He's saying, take the smallest seed that we use here in this land, the smallest seed known to you, the mustard seed. And he is saying, you know that this little tiny seed, the smallest seed that we plant here in our land, can grow into a bush or a tree that can stand 15 feet high and could end up being a refuge for the birds of the air. And Jesus says, that's what the kingdom is like. That's a good comparison, he says. That, that's a good analogy. The kingdom had small beginnings. Think about it. A manger in a stable. But it has grown from that manger, from that stable, 
to become worldwide in its scope. It began with a Jewish man in a Jewish society in a piece of land smaller than the state of New Jersey. But it has expanded way beyond the tiny land of Israel, and now it includes multitudes of people around the world who are not Jewish. That's the picture that is portrayed here in this parable. And that is the imagery of the birds of the air coming and nesting in the branches of the tree. Ezekiel and Daniel both use that imagery to refer to peoples from all nations, people from all over the world. So this picture that Jesus is painting for us is saying the kingdom has grown from its tiny Jewish beginnings and now it is worldwide in its scope. Beloved, this is, if you stop to think about it, this is a picture of the indescribable blessing that we have as Gentiles to be a part of the kingdom. Now think about this. The kingdom was not promised to us. It wasn't promised to us as Gentiles. It wasn't prophesied to us. It was promised to the Jewish people. In fact, even in our Lord's own ministry, in Matthew 10, when he sent his disciples out on their first mission trip, he told them, do not, do not go to any Gentiles or any Samaritans, only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. This message is for the Jewish people, Jesus was saying. It was for them. But this parable indicates that God's plan was that we get to be partakers in the blessings of the kingdom because the salvation that King Jesus brought to this world, promised to Israel, promised to the Jewish people, has been expanded now to include us Gentiles. Let me show you this over in Ephesians chapter 2. Turn over from Mark's gospel. Because here in Mark 4, Jesus is predicting it. By the time you get to Ephesians 2, it is starting to become a reality. So Paul talks about it there. So after the four Gospels, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, chapter 2. And hopefully this will help us appreciate just how undeserving we were and are of God's blessings the, the blessings that God has now bestowed on us Gentiles. And hopefully this will fill us with greater gratitude and appreciation for being included in what was not originally focused on us. Let me show you what I mean. Beginning in verse 11. Paul says, Therefore remember. That's a command to us, beloved. Remember. You and I need to think about this. We need to remember something. Remember that you... Once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands. Now stop right there and let's unravel that. Paul begins here in verse 11 by describing the former condition of us Gentiles. He is not describing our past state of sin. That was dealt with in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter, where Paul says we were dead in sin, we walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. But now, now, verses 11 and 12 are not specifically referring to our condition as sinners, but they are referring to our condition as Gentiles. So this is you, this is me, Gentiles. Now the Jewish people had a title for all Gentiles. Paul uses that title here in verse 11. 
That title is the uncircumcision. That's what the Jews called Gentiles. They, they were the uncircumcision. And the reason the Jews made such a big deal out of this is because all the way back in Genesis 17, God gave the sign of circumcision to the Jews as a sign of His covenant with them specifically. So whenever the Jews wanted to brag, which they shouldn't have done, but whenever they wanted to brag about their special position with God, they called themselves the circumcision, and they called all other peoples the uncircumcision. The Jews centered on this external sign, but they failed to understand that God was concerned about internal genuineness. That's why in Romans 2, 28 and 29, Paul said, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, neither is that circumcision which is outward in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, having sin cut away from our hearts. In Galatians 6.15, Paul said, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision avails anything nor uncircumcision, but being a new creation. The Jews had completely missed the point. God wasn't merely interested in a surgical operation. That's why Colossians 2.11 says, In Christ you are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. All along, God intended for the physical circumcision to be a picture of their circumcision of the heart. But the Jews had completely missed that point. They were proud of external circumcision, surgical operation. And so they slurred the Gentiles by calling them the uncircumcision. So that's what Paul is saying here. He says, therefore remember, again, command to you and to me, therefore remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time... At that time you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope, and without God in the world. Now here Paul states that even though the Jews did have the wrong attitude, most of them at least, they still had a great advantage over the Gentiles because of all the benefits God had so graciously bestowed on them. The Gentiles did not have exposure to all of that spiritual wealth. In the words of this verse, verse 12, Gentiles were without. And here in verse 12, Paul lists five benefits, five blessings from which the Gentiles were excluded or alienated. Notice the five. First of all, they, we, were without Christ. In other words, the Gentiles had no hope of a Christ. No hope of a Messiah. The Jews, at least, had a messianic hope. They knew that one day their Savior would come. They knew that their Deliverer would come. But the Gentiles had no claim to this Messiah. He wasn't promised to them. He was promised to the Jewish people. So they were without Messiah. Secondly, the Gentiles were without citizenship. They were, we were, aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Paul says. Israel's commonwealth wasn't just their nationality. It was all the truth that God gave them that the Gentiles didn't have. Every Jew, think about this, every Jewish person had exposure and access to the truth of God and the truth that, of the old covenant that God made with Israel. 
Gentiles had no claim on that covenant. And that's why in the next phrase, Paul says, strangers from the covenants of promise. Complete strangers from the covenants of promise. Gentiles were without the covenants of the promise. As a little side note, notice that promise is singular and covenants is plural. That's an interesting little thing that Paul does here. The Abrahamic promise is the overriding promise in all of God's covenants with Israel. Within that great promise, there were several covenants. The Mosaic Covenant, the Davidic Covenant, the Palestinian Covenant, the New Covenant, etc. But the Gentiles, beloved, you and I, were strangers to all of it. That wasn't, the, the covenant wasn't made with us. The Old Covenant wasn't made with us. It was made with the Jewish people. So they, the Gentiles, we had no promise from God, no guarantee, nothing. Gentiles were without Christ or without the Messiah, without citizenship, without covenants, and therefore, Paul says, fourthly, without hope. I mean, think about it. If you don't have a Messiah coming, and you don't have a kingdom, and you don't have any promises from God, you don't have any hope. It's hopeless. And if that isn't bad enough, the end of verse 12 says, without God in the world. Now that doesn't necessarily mean that all other peoples around Israel were atheists, because we know they weren't atheists. It just means they didn't have the one true God, the creator God, Yahweh, the God of Israel. They were without God in the world. So that's the former condition of the Gentiles, of you, me. Not only dead in sin, verse 1 of this chapter, but alienated from access to the truth that could deliver. But God had a plan. God had a remedy. He chose the Jewish people, yes. But he didn't choose them to be a spiritual cul-de-sac. He chose them to be a vessel through whom he would bless the world. And that's why Paul adds verse 13. He says... But now, this was our former condition. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. These Gentile Christians were once without Christ, but Paul says now, based on his death, by his death, they were in Christ. They were in a relationship with Christ, just like you and I are, if you know Christ. We're in a relationship with Him. We are in Him. And that was made available to us by the blood of Christ, as Paul says at the end. And Paul continues to expound. He says in verse 14, For, let me explain this further, he says, For He Himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The he here in verse 14, by the way, is very emphatic in the original Greek text. He himself is our peace! Exclamation point. He alone is our peace. The death of Jesus was the only thing that could destroy this wall of hatred between the Jew and the Gentile by placing both in Christ. 
In verse 14, Paul says, Jesus broke down the middle wall of partition, the middle wall of separation. Wow, is that a powerful phrase. Maybe not to us, because we're not first century people. But when Paul said those words, he painted a picture in print. He painted a picture in words that was so vivid for the first century reader. Because it took the person right back to the temple. The temple scene. The outer court of the temple was called the court of the Gentiles. It was separated from the inner courts by a wall. And interestingly, on this wall was a sign that read, and this, this sign was spaced out all the way around the wall, every few feet. The sign said, no Gentiles. Here's a direct quote of the sign. This has been discovered in archaeological discoveries. No Gentiles may enter within the barricade which surrounds the sanctuary and enclosure. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. The middle wall of partition. That shows you just how much of a distinction there was between Jew and Gentile. If you're a Gentile, you go beyond this wall, you die. And you have yourself to blame. But here in verse 14, Paul says, that's no longer true. The wall is no longer there. Verse 15, he's abolished in his flesh the enmity. That is, the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. The greatest barrier between Jew and Gentile in the first century, and not only in the first century, all the centuries preceding that, the greatest barrier was caused by the ceremonial law. Jews couldn't eat with Gentiles because of all the ceremonial law. They couldn't eat with their, in, they couldn't eat their food. They couldn't eat their, with their instruments, their implements of eating. I mean, it was this huge barrier. But verse 15 says, All that was done away with by the death of Christ so that Jew and Gentile can now be one. And you want to hear something that just is, every time I consider this, that's just so stunning to me. When Jesus died on the cross, he abolished the ceremonial law. He fulfilled it, as he said he did, and then he set it aside. He fulfilled it, set it aside. But the Jewish people still held on to it. They held on to it for years. So about 40 years after the death of Jesus, God silenced the ceremonial law once and for all. You know how God did it? In A.D. 70, the Roman army came to Jerusalem totally decimated Jerusalem, totally destroyed the temple. And once the temple was destroyed, there was never a sacrificial system in Judaism again. There hasn't been since A.D. 70. To this day, no sacrificial system in Judaism. And with the temple's destruction went all the records so that the Jews no longer know what tribes they belong to, who their priests are. You talk to Jewish people today, it's very rare. There are some, because of their last name, who would know what tribe they're from, but very few. They don't know what tribe they're from. They don't know who their priests are. The whole system is finished. And that's the way God wants it, Paul says, because the death of Christ removed that barrier. And the end of verse 15 gives the purpose. It says, so as to create in himself one new man. The word new here in verse 15 is a very important Greek word. It means new in essence, new in quality. And here's the point. The point is, the church, this new, this, this body of Jew and Gentile is a new thing. It's new. 
The church wasn't in the Old Testament. The church didn't start until the day of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2. Which means that we, beloved, as the church, we are not the new Israel, we are not the true Israel, we are not spiritual Israel, and neither is Israel the church. The church never existed before. It's new. And here in this passage we see that the church is made up of anyone, Jew or Gentile, who has been reconciled to God by the cross of Christ. Paul says here in verse 16, and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. You see, the problem of enmity was really deeper than just nationality. Both Jew and Gentile were separated from God because of sin. Romans 3, and 23 says, For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Both Jew and Gentile need to be reconciled to God before they can be reconciled to each other. But once they are reconciled to God and reconciled to each other, they together form what verse 16 calls the body. Do you realize that Israel was never seen? Read the Old Testament. You read it from every line, every word. Israel was never seen as a body. Never called a body. Israel was a nation. But the church is a body. And again, emphasizing the church is a totally new thing. The body of Christ is formed by the cross of Christ. Did you notice that verse 13 speaks of Christ's blood? Verse 15 speaks of his flesh. And verse 16 speaks of the cross. Those three are really interchangeable terms. Because they all refer to Christ's substitutionary death on the cross. And that's what removes this enmity between man and God and the enmity between people and people. And so verse 17 says, He came and preached peace to you who were far off, that's Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jewish people. He came and preached to all these groups. Jesus started with the Jewish people. But by the time he got to the end of his ministry, he's going to Gentiles. And he told his disciples in Matthew 28, go into all the nations to preach the gospel. Not just Jews, Gentiles. All people need to hear this. And notice the progression here in this text. Verse 14 says, Christ is our peace. That's what Paul, for he himself is our peace. Then verse 15 says, Christ is made peace. Right at the end. Thus making peace. And then in verse 17 it says, Christ preached peace to those who were far off, to those who were near. Christ is our peace. Christ made peace. Christ preached peace. And when he preached it, the content of his message is summarized in verse 18. For through him we both Jew and Gentile. We both have access by one Spirit to the Father. Once again, this little phrase, through Him, is very emphatic in the Greek text. You, you could almost render this, through Him and Him alone, we both have access. It's only through Him. The only way to God for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, is through Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said this himself. John 14, 6. You know the verse. I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. In Acts 4, 12, Peter said, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Jesus said it. Peter repeated it. Paul repeated it. 1 Timothy 2, 5. There is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. That's it. That's the only way. So what is the message here of Ephesians 2, 11 through 18? Well, it's the message of the unity of all believers in Jesus throughout the world. Whether Jew or Gentile, whether Canadian, Mexican, Ukrainian, Turkish, doesn't matter. Verse 14, Christ made both one, verse 14 says. Verse 15 says he made one new man. Verse 16 says there is one body. Verse 18 says both have access by one spirit. Beloved, we are one. You and I are one with every other true Christian around the world. And think about it this way. Those of us who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel have been included in the body of Christ and have been included in this spiritual mystery form of the kingdom. That's the point of this passage here in Ephesians 2. And it is the very picture that was predicted by Jesus, portrayed by Jesus in the parable of the mustard seed in Mark chapter 4. Now let's go back to that text as we close. Back to our text in Mark chapter 4. So Jesus tells this little but powerful parable about the mustard seed, how it starts so tiny and grows And it grows to such an extent it has large branches. Birds of the air may nest under its shade. And that's us. That's you and me coming into the kingdom. In verse 33, Mark says, And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Now, Mark is not suggesting here that Jesus never, ever taught again without using a parable. Because we know that he did. But on this day, and on this occasion, this is the only way he taught. Furthermore, there were many times in the future when he chose to speak in parables. It became his common method for teaching. Not only that, we know from Matthew 13 that he gave several other parables on this very day. But Mark just gives us some samples here in chapter 4. This final one that Mark records for us is one of great encouragement. I hope it is to your heart. The kingdom started small, like a tiny little mustard seed. But it has grown, and it has expanded, and it is now like a tree in which the birds of the air may nest under its shade. So the kingdom has grown from its tiny Jewish beginnings, a little baby in a manger, in a stable, in a country smaller than the state of New Jersey. And now the kingdom is worldwide in its scope. It's in Africa. It's in Asia. It's all around the world. There are people all around the world who are part of the kingdom of heaven. Think about that, beloved. The message of the kingdom that John came preaching and Jesus came preaching has now spread around the world. As I mentioned earlier, I just got back and I, I've 
I interacted with believers in Poland and in Germany, the Czech Republic, and in northern Russia, central Russia, southern Russia. True believers in Jesus Christ all around the world. And one day in heaven, there will be people from every tribe and tongue and people and nation giving praise to the Lamb of God who was slain to make us a kingdom and priests to serve our God. One day that will be a reality. So here's the question as we close. Please hear it. Will you be there? Will you be there? There will be people there from all around the world. Will you be one of those? You won't be if you don't know and love the king. If you don't know the king personally, if you're not in Christ, you won't be there. Remember, one of the one of the truths that Jesus taught in these parables is that the kingdom of heaven sometimes has this mixture of people, wheat and tares, people who look genuine, but they're not genuine. So I have to ask you, are you genuine? Are you real? Do you really know Christ? Are you really in Christ? Do you genuinely have a relationship with Christ? If you do, you'll be there in the future. If you don't, you won't be there. Even if you attend church every Sunday, even if you're a member, even if you've been baptized, even if you take a communion, you won't be there if you don't know Christ as your Lord and Savior. So if you don't know Him, if there's any doubt in your mind, settle the issue today. Ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. Let's bow together as we close. As we bow our head in closing this morning, I want you to think, if you're a child of God here this morning, if you're a Christian, I want you to think about what we saw there in Mark 4 and Ephesians 2 about you, you and I. The fact that you and I are included in the kingdom as Gentiles. Just contemplate that. We saw that Paul said in Ephesians 2, remember, we, this is something we need to think about. We, we don't often think this way. We need to remember what we didn't have as Gentiles. Not only were we sinful, dead in sin, we didn't have access to spiritual truth until God brought us near by the blood of Christ. So let your heart be filled with gratitude to God for including you as a Gentile in this incredible kingdom, this marvelous plan of salvation. So if you're a child of God here today, that, that should be your response. Just overwhelming gratitude and appreciation to the Lord that you, not only as a sinner, you and I as sinners, but as Gentiles have been brought into this, this great kingdom, this spiritual kingdom. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ, or if there's any doubt in your mind, any reservation, if, you're, if, you, if you don't really know Christ, you're not a part of the kingdom. Oh, externally, you may look it. That's what Jesus told about in one of his parables. You may look like it because you look like others. You, you go to church and you do all the same stuff. But in your heart, you don't really belong to Christ. If that's you or if you think it may be, then settle the issue today. Right this moment, right where you're seated, just call out to the Lord. Lord, I want to know you. I want to belong to you. Come into my life. Forgive me of my sin. Take control of my life. Make me the man, the woman you want me to be. Don't miss the kingdom by being just superficial. Make sure you really know Christ. 
and belong to him. Father, thank you for our exposure to the marvelous teaching ministry of the Lord Jesus. Amazing to think about the way he could take concepts and truths and put them in picture form like that with such an economy of words and yet say so much by saying so little. And as we have looked at the parable of the mustard seed this morning, to, to see its message, the, the, the point that our Lord was making, that the kingdom would start small, but it would grow and it would expand and it would include peoples from all over, from nations all over the world. That's us. May that thought really grip our hearts. That's us. We get to be a part of the, the kingdom, even as Gentiles, because of what Christ has done for us. May it fill us, overwhelm us with gratefulness and appreciation. And we pray for anyone here among us who's not a part of that. Though he or she may look the part, may appear to be, but not genuinely belong to Christ. Do whatever is necessary, Father, to bring that man, woman, young person, whoever it is, to a genuine faith in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.